0: Couldn't have been a much more perfect song than that. Jenny leans over to me in the middle of that song and says, Isn't it weird to think that everything we have, like everything we've accrued in life, everything that we've possessed, all of it will just crumble and fall apart. Eventually we'll get old and we'll be gone. kind of puts things in perspective of what we've been talking about. What is it that's actually going to last um, my grandparents, Green and grandpa, uh, some of the stuff that they had still remains. It's in mom and dad's attic or closets or Uncle Chris's or Uncle Matt's. But eventually th- that will um, be, be gone and disappear. But what's neat to know is that my kids are being raised to love Jesus because we were raised to love Jesus, because my mom and dad were raised to love Jesus, and that's what lasts, and that's what we're here for. That's what this is all about. So it's perfect, perfect song. Uh, not depressing. I sound depressed. I'm not depressed. That's a really good thing because outside of Jesus, you don't have your speck of dust, and the dust disappears. So that's. Um, That's pretty awesome. Okay, so anyway, we've been doing this series, this ordinary series, um, and many of you know that I teach at Eastern High School. I've been teaching at Eastern High School for 22 years now, and it's afforded me the opportunity to have relationships with a lot of young people who go on to become adults, and I look back and think of them as kids, like Joe Fincher, who thought he knew everything. Joe's here, right? Is Joe here? Joe's not here, because he knows everything. He doesn't need to be here at church. That's really great. And then uh, the Salkis. I taught the whole Salki clan and still teaching the Salkis. It's a never-ending procession of Salkis. The Salkis never cease. But one of them, uh, last week, you remember in the message that I was talking about challenging you to live your life instead of climbing the social ladder to look down and reach out to those who you see and understand are below you on that ladder. (laughs) You know what Allison Salke did last week? She walked up to me right after church. I just wanted to reach out to you this week and just let you know that you are cared for. I said, I am not below you on the social ladder. (laughs) Somehow you've fallen under him. Anyway, um, but of all of the students that I've taught... I really believe that the most challenging student that I ever had was my sister, Katie. In 2005, she graduated from Eastern. I started teaching in 2001. So I had my sister, Katie, in class. And you can imagine how that goes. If you know her personality at all, every time she had a question, and she had a billion questions. Katie, if you know her, it has to be detailed exactly how many words per sentence, and how many sentences per paragraph, and how many paragraphs per essay are you looking for. I don't care, Katie. Write the essay. Just write it and then I'll grade it. Well, if I don't know what you expect, then how in the world am I supposed to write it? I wanted to strangle her more as a student than I ever did as a sister, and that's saying something. But anyway, when she would ask a question, just a little look on her face, um, Mr. Heck, I have a question. I just wanted to punch her, punch her right in the throat every single time. But can I tell you the real problem that I had having Katie in class? And this is, I'm being actually serious when I say this. My real problem that I had having her in class was the memories that I had of her growing up. And not her, but the memories I had of her friends that had done things to hurt her feelings, that had uh, in some way mistreated her as a kid, That's really hard, because I picked on her every day. That is my God-given right as her brother. But I don't want to see anybody else pick on her or mistreat her. That's not what you do. And then when I had to look at those students in class and treat them fairly and kindly, that was a little difficult, because I remembered what you said to my sister and what you called my sister in the third grade. I'm still not over that. And it's something that I worry a little bit about having my kids when I have them in class holy cow, that's going to be something. But to have their friends that, that I remember some of the things and kids are just kids and they mistreat people sometimes and it's part of a process. I know my kids mistreat others sometimes and I understand that's how it works but I don't like that because I love my kids and I don't want to see them mistreated. And if you are a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Even if you're not a parent, but you have family members, you don't want to see them mistreated. That came crashing into my mind this this week as I was preparing this message, because think of everything we've discussed to this point about the value that is placed on every human being and the way we, if we follow the ways of society, treat those who we do see as lesser than us, the way we disregard them. If Jesus sees and loves them more than I love my sister or my own kids, and I know how I feel when I see my sister or my own kids mistreated. How does Jesus feel when he sees his children being treated less than, being mistreated? You see, that's what I started thinking about. Remember where we've been, that all of us have the exact same value and worth to the Father. In society, we have different levels of who is more valuable than others. And the ones that cure cancer are a lot more valuable than the mechanics. Those are the ones that are worthy of praise and honor. But in God's eyes, they're both specks of dust that have had the breath of life breathed into them, this divine spark that God puts into both of them and therefore they're of equal value. We are all specks of dust that have been made into divine image bearers. Every single one of us. It's true for the next Einstein and it's true for the next Down syndrome, baby. All of them, divine image bearers, In other words, when we look at it, we look at this, if we see through the eyes of heaven, we see four individuals that are of equal value and worth. On planet Earth, worldly perspective, that isn't true at all. But through the eyes of the Father, divine image bearer, divine image bearer, divine image bearer, divine image bearer, and they are all worthy of the respect that should be afforded to one that carries that in them. The divine spark of the Father. Now, knowing all that's the case, I want you to flip to the book of Matthew. This is, uh, this is not an easy passage. This gives us a look at how all of this ends. This is Jesus speaking, and he's talking about the end of all things. He's talking about Judgment Day, when we will all appear before the throne. I want you to look at what he says in the context of everything that I've said to this point about how every single one, the homeless people as well as the presidents, have equal value, and God loves them equally. Begin in verse 31, remembering this is Jesus speaking. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. I was a stranger, and you noticed me. You invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous, all of those people on his right, will answer him and say, Lord, we didn't see you. When did we see you hungry and feed you? You're God, you're Jesus. Or thirsty and give you something to drink. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? No, we would have known if we would have seen you and we never saw you. And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, whatever you did for those homeless guys, you did for me. Stop right there for a second. That's the value that God places on those that in society we regard as the dregs and the ones that we overlook and don't notice. Those that that we, we see below us on the ladder and we never look down there. He's saying, whatever you did for them, that's how much you love me. That's amazing when you think about this. And then verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will answer exactly like you would expect. We would have never done that if we would have seen you, Jesus. We would have never cast you out. We would have invited you. You're Jesus. You're worthy of our attention. They'll answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, those that you regarded as less than, those that you saw as below you and not capable of helping you climb the social ladder, whatever you did not do for them, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. We say that we know that, and we say that we believe that. It's in the Bible, after all, so we believe that that's true. But do we live like we believe that that is true? Think about your daily interactions and how much you are reaching below you on the social ladder to lift other people up. Think of the way that you interact with the homeless. Think of the way, Have you ever interacted with the homeless? The ones who are sick, the ones who are infirm, the ones who are in Century Villa and have no one to visit them. Think of the ones who are in prison, the ones who maybe recently were arrested, and and you know them and, and you talk about them and you can't believe what they did. Have you visited them? How do you deal with them? Do We say we believe this stuff, but do we live like we actually believe that that is true? Do we live that we like we know on Judgment Day, God isn't going to be impressed with what we accomplished and what we attained and what title we had. He's not interested in that. But he will be impressed by those who took time out of their busy social calendar to care for the hurting people, his hurting children. That's what he's going to notice, and that's what he's going to honor. Do we live that way? That that he's going to give uh, honor to those who spent time in jails, who spent time in hospitals and broken homes and streets and orphanages. Jesus is not going to be looking at your follower count and say, well, how, how much influence did you wield over all of these people? He's looking to see how many of those that he created you took time to notice. Everybody notices the people on the red carpet. But what about the people that sweep the red carpet? Does anybody notice them? That's what he's going to... Do you see why I started this entire series warning against dreaming big? Uh, You remember that horrible music video with the Martins, dream big, it's the Lord's desire for... If you don't pay attention, I'll do it. I'll play that thing again and make you watch it. You stay focused right here. Otherwise, I'll punish you in that way. But you remember that, yes? Dream big because all of heaven is dreaming big for you. It's why I warned against that because our big dreams inevitably involve climbing the ladder of success. It's how we compute that. To dream big is to accomplish big things which is always defined by the world. The other specks around us then If we're seeking to climb that ladder, they become tools for us to use as we climb that ladder. Or they become steps for us to step on all while we're attaining personal glory. That isn't the kind of dream that God has called us to have. But it becomes the driving force in our life. It becomes our religion. It becomes everything that means anything to us. I have to accomplish this. I have to do this. And I am driven to do this. I want to attain this level of influence. And then once I have that level of influence, then I'll speak the truth of God's word to all of these people. All the while that we're saying that, we're stepping on God's people that he's called us to minister to. That's the danger of dreaming big. I want you to contrast this philosophy with what James says. Our religion becomes attaining these great heights so that we can do something big for the kingdom of God. And look at what James tells us, chapter 1, verse 27 Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. What is it? To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like small dreams. That doesn't sound like you're accomplishing much. Nobody's going to notice if you're taking care of orphans and widows because orphans and widows don't get anybody's attention. Nobody's going to give you any type of an award for doing that and to simply keep yourself from being polluted by the world. You can do that in Greentown. You can do that living a, a pretty modest life. And yet, that's what God our Father accepts as pure and faultless religion. What is our ambition What are we actually trying to attain here? Who is it that we're trying to please here? I just want to ask a general question. I say, can I ask a question? Of course I can ask it. I have the microphone, seriously. But here is my question. If we really believed these things as a congregation, if we really believed this stuff, how much would this church body change? What we do and how we operate and how we function as a collective. If we loved and valued the homebound And the visitors, and the toddlers, and the preachers, and the divorced dads, and the single moms, and the nonverbal kids, if we valued all of them as Jesus did, just as valuable as the preachers, and the presidents, and all of the people that are on the stage, and the worship leaders, if we valued them all as Jesus did, would our ministries at this church change? Would our services change or be altered? Would our budget change and what we're investing in and spending our money on? Would it change if we really believe that? Now, if the answer is no, we are functioning that way, then that's great news, and that's exactly where we need to be. But if so, if it would change, or don't even think about us as a collective, but think about you as an individual. If you were really living that way, would your budget change? Would the time that you're spending change? If so, then what are you waiting for? Is this the kind of life that you want? Listen. I can't say until the last several months that that was the kind of life that I wanted because I wasn't even aware that that was the kind of life that I was being called to. But I'm telling you right now, I've decided that is the kind of life that I want. I I am content to stay in Greentown the rest of my life and live a humble and quiet life where nobody else knows my name if I am doing my part to be obedient and faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I want in this life. That's so why I've decided that I want. I've realized then that I need to ask a couple questions. Where are my dreams coming from? Where do they originate? And exactly where are they leading me? What is driving the dreams that I... That is terrible news. I really hope that didn't break otherwise. Okay, where, where do my dreams come from? Are they motivated by a desire to serve the kingdom of God? Or are they motivated by a desire to serve me? And think of it this way. If the dreams in my head were accomplished, where would I end up? Would I end up closer to the throne of God? Or would I end up closer to having built the kingdom of heck? What is it that I'm driving towards? What do my dreams, where do they lead me? I need to ask that question before I continue down my path. Big dreams can be so deceptive. You have these big goals and big ideas, and here's why. Because my mind, and I think yours too, but I don't know, but my mind is very good at justifying whatever my heart wants. I am really, really good at this. I decide I know what I want. And then my mind is exceptionally capable exceptionally capable of justifying it all. I can make anything God's will if I really put my mind to it. Even sin, I can actually convince myself that sin that I am committing is God's will for my life. I can be the most prideful person in the world, but this is what God has called me to People will commit sin, they'll commit adultery and think, well, I think this is what God wants for me. He wants me to be happy. He wants me to go in this direction. Our minds are capable of justifying whatever our heart's desire convinces us that it is. I can work towards big success and big money and big positions and big influence and say, it's all about God. It's all about God. I want to attain this level so I can bring glory to God. I can fool myself, but I can't fool him right? And you can't either. Is the driving question in my life, how big will I become? Or is the driving question in my life, what am I doing for God wherever I am and whatever size I am? That's the change I want to make. Instead of the driving question being, how can I continue to attain and get bigger and more influential? I don't want to ask that question anymore. I want to ask, what am I doing for God right here and right now? Whatever size I am in the eyes of the world, I don't know. But whatever, wherever I am and however big I am, what am I doing for the kingdom of God? Are my goals focused on becoming more loved and more important, more content through the eyes of the world? Or is my contentment in him and my goals focused on growing his kingdom? Those are the contrasts, the blue or the white. Which way do we want to live? I've decided, and I know I'm not going to be perfect about this, but I want to live the blue. I want to serve God wherever he places me. That's what I want. We cannot, we know this, Jesus teaches this, that you can't serve both God and money. What is he teaching? That you can't have two masters. There'll be one master in your life, which means you also can't serve God and career success. You can't serve God and influencer status. You can't serve God and reputation. Now, be very careful what I'm saying here. There's only one, there's room for one king on the throne of your heart. So if the king of your life is career success, you can justify that if you want to, but you're not serving God in the process of that. If the king of your life is your reputation or you wanting to influence more people, then the king of your life is not God. Now, understand this, this is really important. That doesn't mean that this stuff is evil. It it doesn't mean it's bad to have career success, like you don't have to say, well, I'm going to serve God, so I'm going to go get fired big time. No, you don't go and waste your career just so you can serve God, and you don't have to, I don't care about my reputation, I don't need to influence anybody. That's not the point. The point is, what are you doing in those areas of your life need to be directed by who you serve, which is God, okay? God uses people in big positions, God will grant people big success. Let me give you an example. And I've used this guy before, partially because I have what you would call like a, like a, a professional, um, uh, a, a, I don't want to say a man crush, but like I really, I really look up to this guy. I really love this guy. William Wilberforce. Okay, if you don't know who William Wilberforce is, you need to know who William Wilberforce is. This is the guy right here who joins English-British Parliament. He had an incredible ability to speak. He was an amazing orator. And he goes into Parliament, easily could have become the Prime Minister and everything. His best friend was the Prime Minister. And you know what that guy did? He single-handedly, he goes in and it's like him against everybody else. And over the course of time, with his abilities and God's blessing, he turns the entire Parliament of Britain against the slave trade. He turns them against slavery, him by himself. That's what's amazing. He wielded earthly power. That guy had it. He had the gifts to be able to attain high office and he got it, right? The key is that those things, earthly power, they weren't his ultimate goal or his ultimate objective. That's not what he was after. He found himself given that position. But what was his ultimate goal? To build the kingdom of God, to reach down the ladder to those who were below him. Look what he did with the power. That's why I'm saying it's not that you have to forego career success. It's not that you have to say, well, I don't ever want to serve in a big position. It's not that. It's that wherever God leads you, you want to use it for his glory. And that's exactly what this guy does. If power and fame were the goal of William Wilberforce, I can tell you one thing he would have never done. He would have never fought against slavery. No. No, because everybody was on the side of slavery. Slavery was making Britain incredibly wealthy. You don't want to be the guy that stands up and says, I think we ought to undercut our entire national budget is what I think we ought to do. I think we ought to make ourselves poor and let France run away with all the money. That's what we ought to do. Man, if you're looking for career success, that's not what you say and it's not what you do. He would have never leveraged his position for those who are below him. He would have leveraged his position to get a better position. His best friend was the prime minister. That could have been him. He would have used his power to gain more power. If he'd have done that, that's what I'm talking about. The God of his life would have been career success and earthly power. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he leveraged his position for the benefit of those who were the least of these. Those who had no power whatsoever, who had no voice whatsoever. Those who were abused and mistreated. You remember that ladder that I showed you last week? You remember the stick figures and they were all climbing and it was so effective. And then you remember Jesus was slowly descending. Yeah, William Wilberforce was like, all right. And he's following Jesus down the ladder and everybody's looking at him. What are you doing? You have all of this power. Why are you going after those people? They can do nothing for you. Those aren't even humans down there. William Wilberforce saw things differently because he was following the Father. All the other members of Parliament are climbing up that ladder and he is lifting up those who were down below. He kept his position of power. He held it for years and years and years, but it didn't control him. That's not what he was after ultimately. In a field, politics, that is obsessed with personal gain, his dreams were focused on faithfulness. Now, it could have cost him his position, but you know why it didn't? Because God needed him in that position and he was being faithful and God protected him to hold that position because he was being faithful to the kingdom of God. That's exactly why he stayed in that position. By the way, I don't want to let Wilberforce go quite yet because I need you to see he is the perfect demonstration and example of what the difference is in reward for whichever path you choose. You remember the white or the blue? Whichever path you choose. He chose the blue. But let's understand something. Had he chosen the white, he would have continued the the pursuit of political power, which he held anyway. William, William Wilberforce attained worldly power and worldly fame. We still know his name, okay? That's pretty impressive that he was around hundreds of years ago and we still talk about it. So everything that we say we want, remember the song, we want a legacy, we want people to remember us. Yes, he had that. And what did it bring him? This is important He attained all of those things in a worldly sense that we say we want. Power and fame and money. And what did it bring him? He died. He's not here anymore. And so what did it all come to? His possessions disappeared. But here was the big payoff for for William Wilberforce living a life of earthly glory. That. He has a statue. He has a few of them. And they're impressive statues. If you pursue worldly fame and success, maybe you'll be successful. Maybe the world will remember you a few hundred years after you're gone. I doubt it that that's going to happen, but maybe some of you will just set the world on fire and you'll be remembered in 400 years. And if so, the big payoff for you as you're laying in the grave, not even conscious and aware of it, there'll be a stone statue that birds poop on of you. That's a great big payoff for you. Well done. Was it worth it? Was it worth everything that you sunk into your great worldly success? But here's what William Wilberforce understood. That isn't what I want. That's not what I pursue. He got it, but it's not what he wanted. It's not what he desired. He used power and fame for the least of these. And what did that bring him? Let me let Jesus tell you what it brought him. Jesus tells you exactly how this unfolded. When William Wilberforce closed his eyes for the last time on earth and opened them in front of the throne of God. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. What's the better reward? What is worth spending your life working towards? A statue with bird poop or hearing that from your master? I mean, to me, there's no question here. That's the choice that exists bet- right before us. And do you see how dangerous sin can be? It'll warp our minds to think that we ought to chase after that statue stuff. How, it doesn't even begin to compare. So I want you to do this. I want you to take a minute right now and block out everything else. You can't do this thinking about anybody else. This is only you and your life. Right now, in your mind, I don't need you to close your eyes or anything like that, but I want you to stop and look at your life as it exists right now. And I don't care if you're really young. I don't care if you're more seasoned. I don't care if you're somewhere in the middle. I don't care if you're sick. I don't care if you're healthy. It doesn't matter where your life is right now. You don't number your days. You don't know how many. There's somebody here who's exceedingly healthy, whose life is going to end long before somebody who right now is not doing well health-wise at all. We don't know. We don't number our days. So right now, wherever your life is, are your dreams, the dreams that you still have for your life, are they flowing from a right relationship with God? And I'll give you a way to answer this in just a second. But take stock of your own life. The dreams that you have for your life, are they flowing from that right relationship with God? Are you running towards his priorities in your life? Think about your life. Are you right now dedicated to running after his priorities, which you remember means descending the ladder, not trying to climb that ladder? Now, to answer those questions, if you're struggling, because we all want to say yes, we are, then here's some practical questions to go along with it. How do you use your time? If you broke down your time, how do you use that time? How much time do you spend with him? How much time? Either in prayer, in study of his word, in getting to know him. Compare that to the time that you spend chasing after worldly things. Are you leveraging the assets that you do have for him and his kingdom? Whether it's power, whether it's money, whatever it is. Are you leveraging the position that you hold for him? Oh, I'm a housewife. Right. Which means you have inordinate influence over the hearts and the minds of young people. Why am I on this stage? Because Marion Malott and Jean Malott and Paul Heck and Hazel Heck took time a hundred years ago to raise my parents the right way. That's why. Housewives did that. Okay, that's my point in saying all of this. Are you leveraging the position that you have wherever it is for him? What do you spend your money on? How much of your money is spent to build the kingdom of God? How do you use your phone? What do you use your phone for? Do you scroll and get the news to post things that are digging at other people, other image bearers of God? How do you use the phone that you have? How are you using what he has already provided you? Here's what some people will say. Some people will say, well, I would do more for the kingdom if I had a bigger platform. You see, Peter, you get to stand on a stage and preach. I don't have that ability, but if I did have that ability and I had that opportunity, then I would do those things. Or maybe they word it this way. Maybe you word it this way. I do so much for God. I would do so much good if he would just bless me with more money. If I had more money and I didn't have to use everything that I make for my bills, then I could really do, I would love to have the money, to just buy people's meals at, at a restaurant somewhere. If he just gave me that money, that's how I would spend it. And I'd write on the little receipt that went to their tables, that uh, this was on Jesus. And I would send it out. I'd make him famous if I just had more money. Listen, I want you to go back to the, the passage that I just read. And I want you to look at this. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. And so now I will put you in charge of many things. Whatever he's given you, are you being faithful with it? Maybe the reason that he hasn't blessed you with more is because he hasn't seen you being faithful with those few things. It has to start there. Nobody, you make more money, you're still going to spend it the way that you spent the less money, the the lesser money, the other money, the previous money that you had. Man, that was going to be a good line too. How about this? In Luke 16, it's the same principle. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. The value, the amount of money that you have, just like the amount of power that you have, it's all what's coming from your heart. Your heart isn't going to change based on those changing circumstances. You remember in Matthew 13, this, I would have never thought going into this week, that Matthew 13 would become part of this message. I, did not, I would not have ever seen how this applied. And then it just like at a bolt of lightning. This is the perfect. This is, this is so good. I don't want you to miss this. I know they're getting up. But I need you to focus right here. Because Matthew 13. You remember when Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed? A little seed. Okay. What does that have to do with anything that we've been talking about? Go with me on this. How does this apply to everything we've been talking about in this series? In Matthew 13, how does a seed grow? A little seed. How does that little seed... Remember, the kingdom of God is like a seed. So how does the seed grow? Does a seed grow because there's one gigantic watering that you get this giant mixture in a big bowl of all the nutrients and the water and you throw in some uh, stuff and then you dump it on the seed and like that. Is that how a seed grows? In one gigantic, huge moment. No. How does a seed grow? This is the key. Daily repetition of small things. That's how a seed grows. Every day, a little bit of water, a little bit of nutrients from the soil, and a little bit of sunlight. That's how a seed starts to grow. And pretty soon you have a big plant or a big tree or whatever it is that the seed is. All of that because of the daily repetition of small things. The kingdom of God grows the same way. Not with these gigantic accomplishments of men. No, it grows with the faithful obedience of a housewife. It grows with the daily encouragement that comes from the ladies at church. It grows from the daily forgiveness of spouses forgiving one another's faults and failures. That's how the kingdom of God grows. Not with some massive, huge accomplishment that we so want to achieve for the kingdom of God. No not politicians' powers and laws. The kingdom of God is like a seed and it will grow from your daily obedience to him wherever he's placed you. Do you see, are you starting to see why smallness in no way is an issue, is an issue with the growth of the kingdom of God? Oh, I'm too small. I just live in Greentown. What are you talking about? Bigness and big cities and big accomplishments have nothing to do with the growth of God's kingdom. All growth is going to occur at a small level. Maybe your page that is in God's eternal epic, maybe that's going to include something like William Wilberforce that is recognizable to millions. Maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe you're going to start some great project and it's going to be remembered for eons after you've been, uh, you've been gone. Maybe your biggest impact is going to be serving your family. Nobody is going to write a book about the life of Marion or Jean Malat, or Paul and Hazel Heck. Nobody's going to write a book, and if they did, our family would read it, but that's about it. But the huge impact that they had simply from faithfulness to the kingdom of God, look at how it replicates in the ripples, and you can use that in your own family. That's what I'm talking about. Maybe your biggest impact isn't going to be something gargantuan. What matters is the kingdom of God. Do you believe that? What matters is the growth of the kingdom of God and it doesn't matter how many people around you pay attention if God is pleased with your work. If God is pleased with what you have done, with where he has placed you and what he has given you, isn't that the ultimate objective? Whose kingdom are you building after all? If it's God's kingdom then him being pleased is all that we should be chasing after. If it's his, then we need to imitate his example, which is humility and service and climbing down that ladder. Paul knew that, and he set the example. Look at what he wrote. He writes this to the Romans. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. That's what I want. And you know what? The world thought he was nuts. This is a guy that had position. He had power. He had fame. He had all of these things, but his ambition... They came to leave all of that behind and preach the gospel of Jesus where he was not known. Here is the key that Paul understood that you and I have to learn. Let me finish here. This is the key. The size of our dreams will never, ever be as important or significant as number one, what those dreams are built on, what the foundation is, and number two, what they are pointed at. That's where I believe so much of my life I have failed. I'm thankful I'm still breathing and I can make a change. What are they built on? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of self? And what are they pointed at? Accomplishing great things for the kingdom, like raising a child to be baptized and to serve the kingdom of God? Or is it pointed at getting elected to some high office? What are they built on and what are they pointed towards? I know how I would answer those questions for too much of my life. I also know how I answer those questions today. What about you? Father God, I thank you. Thank you for your truth. I thank you for reminding us the way the kingdom of God grows. And I thank you for reminding us that that is the only kingdom that will last. That the kingdom of self, that nations and countries and kingdoms, they'll all fade. They'll all disappear. Everything that we have will crumble and turn back into dust. But those who serve the eternal kingdom of God will leave the only legacy.